greatest chapter in the Bible, not by me, but by people who are far smarter and brighter than me, but I trust them because I've been reading and studying and learning it, and it's just amazing. So we're going to do something a little bit different. Here's the first thing that I want you to do. Uh, If you are uh, a part of the South, and I want you to commit to coming every time that we are preaching out this chapter. Uh, I haven't forgotten offering, I know. Seared into my mind. I'm just getting there. Um, Thank you, Dan. Dan's doing like an inspirational dance at the back there, reminding me about the offering. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to commit over the next 10 weeks to read this chapter every day. Because by the end of the series, I'm hoping that you'll have learnt it really well. That's the first thing. Secondly, I want you to commit to coming every week that we're preaching on this. This is an amazing chapter and you need to hear the whole thing in its entirety. And so when you do that, bring your journal, bring your Bible, bring your highlighter, bring your Sharpie, whatever it is, so that you can uh, scribble on your Bible and make it look pretty, first of all. And secondly, most importantly, that you can then go home and you can do your own study. So here's what we're going to do today, and it's a bit unusual. I don't, haven't done this before. We're going to watch a video as an introduction to this first part of the book, and we're going to take the offering while we're watching the video. See? Yeah. As daft as I look. So, I'm going to pray, and, uh, and then we're going to take up the offering, and we're going to watch this video. Here's what you're going to see in this video is an overview of who Paul is, the writer of Romans, and an overview of chapters 1 through to 4. And it's from what's called the Bible Project. If you've not seen some of the Bible Project videos, you need to make this part of your general study. They are phenomenal. The Bible Project, and there's loads of videos on there, but this in particular introduces us to Romans. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to take up the offering, and we're going to watch this video. Father, I thank you for what has already happened in the service today. But Lord, we've just declared that we bow before you in your presence that, Lord, we submit our minds and our hearts to you. Lord, I pray for the Christians in the room who, Lord, we have a myriad of experiences both now and in our life. Father, I thank you that we're made common by your love for us. Lord, I pray for those in the room who aren't sure what they believe yet. Lord, I pray that they would just experience your love and your passion and your joy and calling this morning. And so, Father, as we take up our offerings now, Lord, We want to be obedient to what your scripture says about giving generously, about giving regularly, about giving cheerfully. And Lord, we're thankful for what you do with this money in this city, nation, and world. So Father, I pray that as we just give our sacrifices back to you now, that you would be pleased with them. We ask these in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Paul's letter to the Romans, it's one of the longest and most significant things ever written by the man who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to a group known as the Pharisees, and he was passionate and devout to the Torah of Moses and the traditions of Israel, and he saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. But then he had a radical encounter with the risen Jesus, who commissioned him as an apostle, like an official representative, to the world of non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible. And so he started going by his Roman name, Paul, and he traveled all around the ancient Roman Empire telling people about the risen King Jesus and forming his followers then into these new communities called churches. And Paul would occasionally write letters to these new Jesus communities to help them foster their faith or answer questions. And the book of Romans is one of these. It was actually written quite late in his career. Now, we know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time, that it was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But at one point, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. And then about five years later, all of those Jews, including Jesus-following Jews, were allowed to return. And when they did, they found a church that had become very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And so this created lots of tension. So that by Paul's day, the Roman church was divided. People disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating about whether non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. And so Paul wrote this letter to accomplish a few things. He wanted this divided church to become unified and for a practical purpose. He was hoping that the Roman church could become a staging ground for his mission to go even further west all the way to Spain. 
And so these circumstances are what motivated Paul to write out his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news that he was announcing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, the letter is designed to have four main movements, but it's unified as one long-flowing exploration of the gospel. The gospel, Paul says, first of all, reveals God's righteousness, and then it also creates a new humanity, which fulfills God's promise to Israel. And so it's this gospel that's going to unify the church. In this video, we're just going to explore the ideas in chapters 1 through 4. So Paul opens by introducing himself as an apostle appointed by God to spread the gospel about Jesus, how he's the Messiah of Israel who was raised from the dead as the Son of God, King of the nations. And Jesus now calls all humanity to come under his loving rule. And Paul says this good news about King Jesus is, first of all, God's power to save people who trust in him, and second, that it reveals God's righteousness. Now, Righteousness is a rich Old Testament word for Paul. It describes God's character, that he always does justice, what is right and what is good, but also that he is faithful and just to fulfill his promises. And Paul's saying that the story of Jesus shows how God has done both of these things. How? Well, he goes first into a long creative retelling of Genesis chapters 3 through 11. He shows how all the Gentile world, all the nations, have become trapped in the spiral of sin and selfishness. The human heart and mind are broken, Paul says. We've turned away from God to embrace idolatry, which means finding ultimate significance in created things and then giving ultimate allegiance to these things that are not God. This results in a distortion of our humanity and destructive behavior. And so what's left is a humanity that stands guilty as charged before a just and righteous God. To which the people of Israel might say, well, it's a good thing then that God chose our people out from among the nations. He saved us out of slavery in Egypt. He gave us the laws of the Torah, like the Sabbath and eating kosher and circumcision. And these all together show us how to live as God's holy people. But, Paul says, not so fast. He recalls the storyline of the Torah and of the rest of the Old Testament, which shows that Israel was just as sinful and idolatrous and morally broken as the rest of humanity. Israel is actually more guilty than the Gentiles, Paul says, because they have the Torah. They should know better. And so, Paul concludes, all humanity, Gentiles, Israelites, are hopelessly trapped and guilty before God. But that is not the final word. The good news about Jesus is God's response. Instead of holding humanity guilty, Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to die on behalf of all people as a sacrifice for sins. As our representative, Jesus took into himself all of the just consequences of the pain, the sin, and the death that we have caused in the world. And he overcame it all by his resurrection from the dead. It's his new resurrection life that he makes available to others. Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. And all of this, Paul says, is how God justifies those who trust or have faith in Jesus. Now, justification is another rich Old Testament term for Paul, and it's related to God's righteousness. It literally means to declare righteous. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, we are given a new status before God. Instead of finding us guilty, God declares that a person is in a right relationship with him and is forgiven. Justification results in a new family. The person who trusts in Jesus is given a place among God's covenant people. Justification also results in a new future, which begins a journey of life transformation by God's grace. And so all of these things about justification are God's gift to those who through their faith are in Christ. And so this leads Paul in chapter 4 to explore the huge implications that all of this has for who can be a part of God's covenant family. He goes back to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Before any of the laws of the Torah were given to Israel, Abraham was justified or declared righteous before God. How? Well, God promised that Abraham would become a father of a large multi-ethnic family that would receive God's blessing. But he and his wife, Sarah, they were really old. They had never been able to have children. But nonetheless, Abraham had radical faith and trust in God's promise. And so God declared him to be righteous. 
And so Paul says, now Abraham has become the father of God's new covenant family. And it's spreading all around the world. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles who have the same kind of faith and trust in the one who fulfilled God's promise to Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. So let's pause and summarize Paul's main ideas here in chapters 1 through 4 because they're the foundation for understanding the rest of the letter. All humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That rescue, however, is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create that multi-ethnic family of Abraham based on faith as his own new covenant people. And so Paul's going to go on to show how this new family is a part of something much, much bigger that calls them to a whole new way of life together. But it's all going to be rooted in these core ideas explored in chapters 1 through 4 of Paul's letter to the Romans. Okay. It's not good. It took me ages to draw all that. It's amazing what you can do with an iPhone. Bible Project. It's really, really good. I highly recommend that you look at it. It's great community group leaders to do on your community group nights as well. Lots of good stuff. So, even though it's a little bit different in how we start, uh, we, if we've got time next week, we'll show you the next few verses, and uh, it'll, be, it'll be great. So, grab your Bibles, please. Romans chapter 8. This is where we're going to pick it up today, and uh, we're going to read the first four verses. Romans chapter 8. There is, therefore, now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now you can already see how that's tying in with some of the stuff that we've just watched. He set us free from the law of sin and death in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Father, I pray that you would give me the ability to communicate your word with clarity. That, Lord, that you would uh, enable me to uh, speak so that people understand. And that, Father, I pray that our hearts will be ready to receive it that God, that, that will bear much fruit, that Holy Spirit, you would do the work only you can do, which is draw us to our Savior Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask these things, believing and hoping and knowing, Lord, that ultimately our answer is found in you. And uh, we love you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. The greatest chapter in the Bible. Why, why is it called so great? See, as Christians, we're called to, uh, we believe that uh, humanity has been called to a perfect design. And, and this design, if you look back in Genesis, you can see that God laid out this design and then clarified it even further uh, later on by giving us the Ten Commandments and said, look, if you fulfill these Ten Commandments, then you will find that life as you know it is meant to be lived in a better way, that we've been created to live in a certain way. And we know and have a sense that there is a better way. We, we know that what we experience on a day-to-day basis or what we feel inside or what we observe in the world, we know that there's something better. And so whether you're a Christian or whether you're just thinking through what you believe, this, this awareness that there's something better that is deep inside the heart of mankind looks for that better in the various places. And, and so there's this tension that builds up within us when we know that we're not getting what we were designed to be, or we're not experiencing what we're designed to experience, or we're not feeling what we are meant to feel. And so this tension builds up in the heart of mankind, and, and we look for different ways in which to remove this tension and look for the better. And so what that looks like is, is throwing ourselves into different practices, into different uh, journeys into different experiences, hoping that we'll find the peace that we were designed to feel in those experiences themselves. But the challenge is, and the problem with that, is it just doesn't work. We actually get more satisfied with the pursuit. We enjoy the pursuit of the better, but we never actually feel the better. 
So, because when we actually get to the end of what we're pursuing, we go, oh, well, that didn't really work, so now I'm going to pursue after something else. I'm going to look for something else. And, and guilt and shame flood in because we feel like we're constantly not living the way that we're meant to live. The challenge with that is those things that we look at as the answer for the, the shame and the guilt and the feeling of the tension that we know there's something better can look in all sorts of different ways, many of which are really good. We can look for the peace in relationships. We can look for them in, our, in, our, uh, in business or in our jobs or in our friendships or in our health and fitness and all these things given by God to point towards Him. But we look at those things, just like we saw in the video We start idolizing those things, believing that they're going to give us the answer that we're looking for. And then they let us down, because they don't. Because they make rubbish gods, small g. Then, as parents and grandparents, and even as friends and as as people that we are in relationship with, we start communicating this to to our little ones. We start telling them things like this. Look, if you really commit yourself to doing this, or if you chase after that, or if you get better this, or if you would only do this, then you will find that. And, and you start communicating that the answer to life is found in the things that, the, that, that you do rather than actually in the creator that we were created to chase after. And so it continues. So the question driving Romans 8 is how do we find the freedom and joy and peace, the perfect design for which we all know we were created to be, even if you don't believe in God, even if you hate God and rail against Him, there's still that sense inside of you that this is not the way it's meant to be. And you might look at social justice, you might look at politics, you might look at equality, you might look at all these different things. This is the answer, only to find that the tension remains. So Romans 8 says... Look, this striving within can disappear. No more striving. Freedom, joy, peace, life, but not as you know it, Jim. Those of you who are too young to understand what I just said, and those of you too old just don't think it's funny, so that's fair enough. Star Trek references all around. See, in Romans 8, verse 26, it says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You're going to find the word spirit in Romans 8 more than any other chapter in the New Testament. It is repeated constantly throughout. Because this is what Paul's going to tell us. That the answer for the freedom and the peace that we are all striving for is found in God through Jesus Christ and communicated through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Living supernaturally. And that's why we've called this this series supernatural. It's supernatural living. It's living it in a supernatural way, in a, in a way that the world, it's available to them, but many do not see it. So no more striving within. So the verses that we find ourselves in now, verses 1 to 4, set the bedrock for the rest of the chapter. If you don't get this, these four verses that some people rather flippantly have called Christianity for dummies, like if you want to know what Christianity is all about, then you're going to find that the gospel is buried in these first four verses so richly. And so that's where we start today. My hope is that by the end of this sermon, you will leave this place knowing, knowing what the gospel is, knowing what God's desire is for us. And so we're going to move through this chapter verse by verse, and, and we're, going to, we're going to hear what the Lord has to say to us. That's my prayer. So first of all, The state that we find ourselves in. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I just want to focus first of all on that word therefore. There's a reason why that word is there. It's because it's referring back to some of the things that Paul has already been talking about in in two different ways. First of all, he's referring to chapters 1 to 6, and then he's also specifically referring to chapter 7. So first of all, chapters 1 to 6 is really summed up by this one verse in Romans 5 verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So here's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, this one act 
done by Adam and Eve right at the beginning of time put this thread of sin in humanity that you can see just by looking at people's lives and looking at the, the effects of sin in our world. That came through one man, condemnation for the nations, for humanity, through this man called Adam. But he's also saying that this act of righteousness by Jesus leads to justification that this idea that God has justified us, legally given us righteousness, so that we can actually have this freedom. So Paul, in chapters 1 to 6, is describing this condemnation, that, that condemnation is real in our culture. Condemnation is real in our culture. It's not a word that you hear very often, but it's a great way of describing where we find ourselves. This resonating echo that goes through our culture could be something like this. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You go shopping, you line up, and you're putting your groceries through the, uh, the checkout, or you're having a fight with the self-checkout machine, you know, and, 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 you, and you're surrounded by imagery that communicates this. You're not good enough because you don't look this way. You're not good enough because you don't act this way. You're not good enough because you're not listening to the right music. You're not good enough because you're not dressing the right way. You're not good enough because you're not earning the same amount of money as that person. You're not good enough. You're not good enough because your kids don't act the same way that 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 family's kids seem to act. I mean, it's like demonic and angelic. You're not a good enough parent. You're not getting on at work. Well, it's because you're not good enough. You're struggling with constant temptation and sin. You're constantly struggling with addiction. Well, the reason is, you're not good enough. It's condemnation. You're not good enough. See, we are obliged, even in a culture that declares as its mantra, that no judgment, you can be anything you want to be, as long as you're just like me. You've got to... Yeah, I, I read something the other day. I'm, it's, 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 it's almost laughable. The idea that, um, that everybody has the right for an opinion. As long as that opinion matches the opinion of the culture. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not good enough. We're so inclusive in our culture. Unless you don't think like us. In which case, you're not good enough. Everything from clothes, music, art, possessions, even our thoughts have to conform. And so as we're surrounded by this message of you're not good enough, this constant condemnation, what it does is it ignites inside the heart of a person who is outside of Christ this desire of betterment, this desire to improve. And so we self-medicate, and this is what self-medication looks like. Self-medication isn't always addiction that is so plainly obvious. It's unhealthy for you. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, sleeping around. Those things, even somebody's common sense would say that's not good enough. But self-medication can also look really good. It can look like family, possessions, relationships, business, money. We're trying to relieve ourselves of this feeling of condemnation that comes from communicating from our culture, you're not good enough, but also resident inside every one of us is this sense of something better because we were created with Adam and Eve. We were created perfect, but we're broken. We have this sin element in our life. So this you're not good enough is true. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. I will never be able to fulfill the design for which God has created me to be. And I can point fingers of blame. If this person hadn't done this to me, if this person hadn't said this to me, if this company hadn't let me go, if if my marriage hadn't done this, or if my wife hadn't done that, and we point fingers of blame, while all the time, inside of us, outside of Christ, there's this, you're not good enough, this condemnation. And then that resonates with culture, and the culture agrees And this guilt, oppression, and shame comes upon us. See, Paul is saying in Romans 8 verse 1 to 4 this. He's saying this. There is condemnation. Because you make that passage opposite. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It therefore would be okay for me to say this. There is now condemnation for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, John says this in, in John 3 verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. By the way, John is known as being one of the most loving disciples. John's the guy who just goes around giving everybody hugs. You know, he's like, oh, it's going to be okay. But you're condemned if you don't know Jesus. Right, you know, just like throw that out there. Because it's true. So Paul is saying, thankfully, outside of, outside of God, even though we're condemned, there is an answer. And in Romans 1 to 6, that's what he's referring to when he says, therefore. But he's also referring to chapter 7. You're all with us. You're all with me. By the way, this has been by far the greatest challenge of my preaching life. Preparing these sermons out of Romans 8. Because it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal chapter. But I also know there's a depth to it. Which is why I'm saying, bring your journal, bring your highlighter, watch the videos, listen to this message again, do some reading, talk about it. it that's where we find growth. Okay, so chapter 7 is saying this. Christian. There is therefore now no condemnation over you. You are free in Jesus Christ. Jesus has taken away condemnation. And then the cry of our heart says this, Great, but what about today? Because today sucks. Because <laughs> the things that I want to do, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I don't do. And the things that I don't do, I want to do. And so Paul recognizes this. And he finishes up in Romans 7, verse 24. And I've mentioned this verse before because this is the verse that I, my very first sermon was preached on. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This idea, this tension, I know there's something better. I know I'm free in Jesus. I know that Jesus died to set me free. No condemnation. But today I feel condemned because I'm not doing that which I know I should be doing. I'm not parenting in the way that I know I should be. So the world whispers, you're not good enough. But the Bible shouts, no condemnation. No condemnation. See, as Christians, friends, you, we need to see, we need to grab an insight into the way that God sees us when it comes to our state. That when God looks at us, He sees what Jesus... If you are in Christ, He looks at us through the lens of the cross. And says and declares, no condemnation. No condemnation. There is no condemnation that when we sin and we fall short and we're filled with shame and we feel guilt, we condemn ourselves, we start trying to be, do things better, we sing louder in the car, we read more scriptures, we go to Willow One Prayer, we bring our highlighters and journals, we try harder, sing louder, and, and we feel less condemned for a little bit. But then we sin again. <laughs> Condemnation comes again. So we grab a new highlighter and a new Bible reading plan. Maybe this Bible reading plan will change my life. Or we start listening to this guy teaching. Or we go to church even more and we sing even louder and, and we feel no condemnation again. But then we sin and condemnation floods in. And this is what Paul is describing in chapter 7. Where do we find the hope in all that? There is therefore now no condemnation. Now, today, no condemnation. There's no condemnation in the past, chapters 1 to 6. There is no, present, uh, there is no condemnation now, referring to chapter 7. And there is no future condemnation. You, Christian friend, are going to stand before God Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, who breathed life into being. And you're going to stand before His throne and it is going to be a fearful day. And He is going to declare over you, no condemnation. Mine. No condemnation. Let that sink in that as a Christian, I am in Jesus Christ. I rest in Him. I trust in Him. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now granted, you are still becoming what you already are. You are already free. You are already righteous. You are already justified. And in some sense, you're already sanctified. But there's a progression, a, a process, that you're becoming that which you've already declared, declared to be. And that's where the daily struggle comes in. But we have to. 
You know, even if this week, every time something came across your mind where you were whispered by the enemy or from within, you are not good enough. If you were to declare louder, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because there isn't. You may be discouraged. You may be feeling like your life is calloused by working so hard. God says, it's fine. There's no condemnation. You're mine. See, Romans 8 reminds us that God does not condemn us, past, present, or future. And He will complete that wonderful work He started inside of us. See, I want you to feel the joy and the hope of this verse. That He will complete. He's not done. You are becoming what you already are. There is no condemnation, even at your very worst, Christian. If you mess up horribly, He still loves you. And I've said this many times. He's not in love with a future version of you. He's in love with you now and all your frailties and all your difficulties and all your challenges and all your mess-ups on your very worst day. And He finishes what He starts supernaturally. But there is a prerequisite. There is a prerequisite. For there is now no condemnation for those who are, what? Everyone? In, wow, we're going to press that. Thank you. Let's try it again. (laughs) It's on the screen. I mean, it's not like you were having to do it from memory. I'm pretty sure it's got something to do with Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are? In Christ Jesus. Oh, yes. That's the prerequisite. This verse, friends, I'm very serious. This verse is not your verse if you are outside of Christ Jesus. This is what is your lot outside of Christ Jesus. Condemnation, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. Condemnation. That's outside of Christ Jesus. This is for people who are in Christ. You see, Christianity is not about improving you in your present state like, you know, you take your, your car to the shop and you kind of want it polished and shiny. And, and, you know, I remember buying our second car. I was so excited as buying our first car was just a pile of rot. It, it actually did really well. It was Sarah's dad's car that I'm pretty sure we, he, uh, he, you know, he, I think he got a good end of the bargain there. We got this brown uh, Nova, Vauxhall Nova, not Nova that looks kind of cool in North America, but the boxy thing, and we got rid of this. We got a brand, not new, red Nissan. What was it? I can't remember. Yeah, it did. It looked great. But then the decay started coming through this nice, shiny red paint, and my buddy, who's far more knowledgeable about cars, brought a magnet little magnet and he started rubbing it around this is after we bought it. he rubbed it around all the bodywork and it was kind of clinging to the bodywork all the way around until it got to certain sections around the arches of the wheels where it had just been basically uh, put uh, the filler in it just filled over the rust and the magnet fell off and so did all my dreams and I said what can I do and he went well he said they've just made it look good The rust is still there. The decay is still there. The damage is still there. That is what our world does. You can cover it up with as much makeup. Go for it. Makeup's good. Go for it. But there's a certain point of no return. (laughs) You can put as much makeup on or something, but it's still plainly obvious that there's issues underneath. And you can tag and bag and stretch it all you want. And, and you know, age wins. See, without sight of Christ, you are set to try to improve yourself and it doesn't work. Christianity is not about improving you and giving you something else to add on to the rest of your life, like makeup. Christianity is about transforming you in Christ Jesus. And so if you are outside of Christ, if Jesus is just this abstract idea that he's this cool guy that kind of like the idea of, it's never going to transform you. The only way you're going to feel transformed, the only way that you stand on no condemnation is in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, you are relying on your own efforts, your own self-medication, and your own power to find peace. 
And that leads you to feeling condemned because you're not good enough, which is true. And the most loving thing I can say is outside of Christ Jesus, you are destined not just to feel condemned in this life, but you will be condemned for eternity. But in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, there cannot be surely any better words to bring soothing wonderful aloe vera when you're sunburnt feeling across our world, across our life, then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you can just soak in that truth, Christian. You can love that truth. You can pray that truth. I, I would encourage you to speak that truth over you because your sins are removed, the scriptures say, as far as the east is from the west. Their sins are buried in God's ocean of forgetfulness forever. That's your promise. That's why we get up this morning to celebrate. That's why we come to church. But the question is, can you say that? That's just the first verse. Verse 2. Where is this freedom found? So we talk about this as our state, our state of condemnation outside of Christ Jesus. So how does our state change? Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Wow, what a passage. The law of the spirit of life. The law of the spirit of life essentially is the gospel. It's a new law. It's a, it's a gospel that sets you free. It's the law that is outside of all other laws and it's part of your life now. The law of the spirit of life is the gospel. I could sp- spend a lot more time on those few words, but I haven't got time this morning. But that is the gospel, the work of the spirit that frees us from the condemnation. That as we come to the cross, we come to what Jesus did and we're going to celebrate this in a few minutes. We're going to come and we're going to remember the crucifixion and the sacrifice of Jesus. That all our sin and shame, all our condemnation, all those things, you're not good enough, are applied to Jesus and die with him. But a new law comes in. The new law, the spirit of life, is given to you as a Christian. Christian, if you are in Christ, you have a new spirit. The old is gone. The new has come. You're a new creation. It's the spirit of life. And it frees us from the law of sin and death. So here's what's interesting about this verse. The word law here is referring to the Ten Commandments specifically. God's proven perfect design. I need you to remember that. This law is not a bad law. That's been mispreached. And I can prove it to you in a second. This law is a good law. This is God's perfect design. And we know that by a couple of verses from uh, Romans chapter 7. Verse 7, for example. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So here's what Paul is saying here. The law, God's proven design, God's ideal for you, is is there and it's a standard. By which, he's saying, I know that I'm a sinner because I'm comparing myself to this standard. I know that my car was full of rust. The magnet fell off because I have a better standard. My neighbor's car that's all pristine and shiny. That's the way it should be. If I didn't have that standard, I wouldn't know that I was a sinner. That's what Paul is saying. So the law is good. I've preached many times about my coveting of my neighbor's grass. I'm not going to go there this morning only to say I know that my grass isn't good enough because all I need to do is look at my neighbor's grass as I'm pouring gasoline on it. No, I'm, I wouldn't do that. Does gasoline work, John? Does that kill grass? Okay. That just came to my mind. Maybe that was a word of the Lord. So the law is perfect, Paul is saying. He goes on in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God. In my inner being. I love it. Because I know that's what I was created to be. But then he's now saying the law of sin and death. Can we go back to that verse again? The law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
Can you see that, hang on a second, if the law is good, why do we need to be set free from it? Well, the law does something else. In James 2 and verse 10, it says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. See, here's the thing with the law. The law, God's perfect law, God's perfect design has to be, you, we have to be perfectly obedient to it in order to be accepted by God. See, while we're not fulfilling the whole law, God's perfect design, if we fail in one area, James is saying, we're condemned. Because what it is, is this way, this law has to be fulfilled in order to be accepted by God because God can have nothing to do with sin. God can have nothing to do with evil, with sin. So if we're not living our perfect design, it means that sin is affecting our life that is creating separation from God. And so here we, here's, here's something you'll never hear me say before from this pulpit. Okay? Just, just li- but hear me out. Don't write it down and then leave. Just, just hear me out. Okay? There are two ways to be saved. There are two ways in which to be accepted by God. There are two ways to come into his presence. You're like, wow, have I chosen the wrong church if you're a gospel believing believer. So just hear me out. The first way is perfect, absolute, non-failing obedience to the law. The other way is grace through Jesus Christ. However, we cannot, it's impossible for us to fulfill in perfect obedience the perfect law of God. So in fact, me saying there's two ways is actually only one way because this way is impossible. See, God's law, His holiness, His perfect character, His perfect beauty, His perfect design demands perfection. If we fail in one point, we are condemned. And we can point other people and go, well, I'm better than them. Yeah, but God's comparing you to Himself. So all the best with that. Complete and total obedience to the law or grace in and through Jesus Christ that comes from those who receive it as he draws us to him. We are completely incapable of fulfilling God's perfect law by ourselves because if you look, the law was weakened and it leads to death. It leads to sin because it's weakened by our flesh, the scripture says. So our own chasing after perfection actually causes this sense of death and condemnation. Think about it. Here's the perfect Imagine this amazing, incredible, um, Adonai supermodel standing right here. Don't think about it too much. Okay? And then there's me. And I look at him, and I look at, you know, his eight-pack and things rippling in all the right places. Okay, some of you are like, I'm going to need a prayer at the end of this. Now, how do I feel stood next to... I'm actually seeing this person here. How do I feel looking at this person? You know, I can do this. I'm going to suck it in. It's all going to be fine. No, if, I'm, if you compare me to, to perfection, you're going to go, you know, he's fallen short of the glory of God. That brings condemnation and death to me. Because no matter how much I work, I don't know whether I'm ever going to look like that. No matter how much you work, you are never going to achieve the perfect design of God and that brings condemnation and death to you. But, verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, on the cross, done. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That one verse, boy, I could preach on this, tells me this, that Jesus did not come just as a man. He didn't take on sinful flesh. He didn't become sinful flesh, which is a heresy. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he became fully God, fully man, and came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came as close to humanity as possible without losing his divinity. Look at these verses. This is encouraging. If you are struggling this morning with sin and temptation, 
there is no condemnation over you in Christ Jesus. And in Hebrews 2 verse 17, therefore he had to be, this is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, that's you and me, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's a legal term. In other words, it's, a, it's like a payment uh, for the sin and the death that's applied to him. He takes the punishment that he justly, that we justly deserve. Hebrews 4 verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus felt every temptation, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He felt every temptation, every challenge, but without sinning. Jesus was the best human, surrounded by the worst. And yet he still did it with patience and love and mercy and kindness and understanding. So when you think that God is looking at you and your sin, Christian, and condemning you, he's not. He loves you. He understands. He's patient. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He does not have a frown on his face. He's not shaking his head like an overbearing father. He is with you. No condemnation. Isn't that beautiful? He died for sin, it says. He laid down his life as a substitute for you and your sin. For all those who receive it, he laid down his life as a substitute for you. In your sin, in your condemnation, in your shame, in your separation, he took that upon himself and it dies with him. For all those who receive it, the scriptures say, there is therefore now no condemnation. All the consequence, he absorbed it all. So, to finish. This is where we've come from, condemnation. This is how we receive freedom in Christ Jesus as a propitiation for our sin, a substitute all applied to him. And that is what we remember when we come to the the bread and the juice in just a few minutes. And then, I've said that second time now in just a few minutes, but this is true now. What does this change of state result in? So what, in other words? (laughs) No condemnation. Fantastic. In Christ Jesus. Yes, Glenn, let's sing. So what? Why has he done this? Is it just so that I can go, you know what? Bring on the sin. I am going to sin as much as possible because i got no condemnation, baby. I just find forgiveness. God loves me. You just said, Glenn, you just said it. Doesn't matter what I do, he still loves me. Paul says, no, no. That's not how it works. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So now we're called to do something that we weren't able to do before. In freedom, in peace, in joy, in no condemnation, in Christ Jesus, we are now free to joyfully, willingly, beautifully, lovingly obey Him in His perfect design. To go into a broken and needy world that desperately needs to see that there's hope and that there's change available and there's transformation. That we go in front of our neighbors, we go in front of our co-workers and we go in front of our friends and our family. Those who are feeling condemned, not good enough. And we declare the truth of the gospel that that which he's done in me is available to you. You too can feel no condemnation. You too can be transformed. That's why... That's why, so we can represent Him, the love of Jesus. We can love God with all our heart, with all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and our neighbors. So we have this two-part calling. We're called to live in the belief that there's no condemnation, so that we then can become ministers of reconciliation. We can become agents of the truth of the gospel daily. That, friends, is why you and I woke up this morning. No other reason other than to represent Jesus well in our community, in our world. And what does that look like? It looks like the one-on-one. It looks like seeking out ways that we can serve. It looks like going into our world and inviting, not just to church, but invite them to church. But you invite them into your life. Come walk with me. 
We become more like him. We enjoy the presence of God. And that energy that I feel here is part of my life on a day-to-day basis. You've got to know this truth. We've been set free, not so we can live life in any way we want. We've been set free so we can live in the way, according to the way that he's been designed. We are the hope. Oh, friends, if I could, if I could transfer what the scripture says deep into your spirit. We, Willow Park Church South, we are the hope for this city. It resides in us. We are the hope. God in me to the condemned and needy world. I know I have a unique job because I get to see the outworkings of you're not good enough. I get to see the broken marriages. I get to see the addiction. I get to see the, the self-medication from those that are driving really nice cars. I get to see that they have all the money and success in the world and yet have nothing. I get to see it as part of my job. I get to weep with those that weep. But then I also get to see the hope and the joy that is found in no condemnation that you can be in the deepest of suffering. We can live supernaturally in a broken world that is desperate to see God. You know what? We owe that to them coming in for communion. We owe it to our world. We owe it to the next generation to communicate that. You're going to find in Romans 8 that there is beautiful passages of of, uh, worship team. You can come and start doing what you do great. We're going to find beautiful passages when it talks about suffering and healing and prayer and, and reassurance and all these wonderful things. But today what I want us to do as we come to share communion together is I want those words, no condemnation. No condemnation. That we're free from condemnation. To enjoy the freedom so that, please listen, No condemnation. So we can enjoy the freedom. So that we can represent God well. So that we can take that into the world. That's why we're here. That's why I say at the end of these services, welcome to church. Go be church. Go and be the so that. Great strap line. Willow Park Church. So that. So that. Set free. So we can obey him. Let's close our eyes and just enjoy the moment as Sarah starts playing.